Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Forestine. And I'm Damian Garde. It's Thursday, May 13th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. The global response to the COVID pandemic was pretty awful. So what changes can be made to better prepare for the next one? That's the focus of a newly issued report, which our colleague Helen Branswell has read and will discuss with us. And people aren't happy with the U.S.'s public health agency either. And perhaps not the people you would think. Stat DC correspondent Nicholas Florco joins us to talk about the public health experts who argue that the CDC is moving too slowly and conservatively on its guidance during the pandemic. Finally, Stat's Nick St. Fleur joins us to recap the Stat Health Tech Summit, which brought together a bunch of interesting people to talk about the technologies, ideas, and massive sums of money that'll shape the future of healthcare. But first, a word about Stat Plus. Enjoying the read out loud? Subscribe to Stat Plus to get stories like these. Stat Plus delivers daily market-moving coverage from across biotech, pharma, and the life sciences. Subscribe today to get access to breaking news, exclusives, and analysis from our award-winning team. Subscribe to Stat Plus today at statnews.com slash subscribe. And as a special thanks for being a Read Out Loud listener, enjoy 10% off your first year by using the code POD. P-O-D. An international panel of experts published the first comprehensive review of the global response to the COVID-19 pandemic this week. You will not be surprised to learn that the report's conclusions were fairly damning. Yeah, failures to heed warnings, a lack of preparation, inadequate supplies, poor coordination, overburdened healthcare systems, and economic inequality. You know, that's quite a list, but they all contributed to what has become a catastrophic human crisis that the world is still trying to end, the report said. But from these failures, the expert panel also looked forward, recommending changes to structures and policies to improve the global pandemic response. The goal is to ensure that what we're all experiencing now doesn't happen again. Our colleague Helen Branswell digested the new report and wrote about it for STAT this week. Helen joins us to discuss some of the details. Welcome back to the podcast, Helen. Good morning, folks. So Helen, the group responsible for this pandemic review is called the Independent Panel for Pandemic Preparedness and Response. Who are these experts and where are they from? So this um, review panel was set up um, at the behest of what's called the World Health Assembly. That's the gathering of 194 member states of the World Health Organization, their governing council, effectively. They uh, meet every year uh, in May. Last May, they asked the director general of the WHO to set up um, a review panel to look at the, the pandemic. The director general, Tedros Adhaman Ghebreyesus, uh, appointed two chairs, um, Helen Clark, the former Prime Minister of New Zealand, and um, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, the former president of Liberia, and they staffed up the committee. They named 13 panelists who range from people like Ernesto Zerdillo, who was the former president of Mexico, to Joan Lu, who was the former international president of um, Doctors Without Borders. Uh, this group has been meeting over the past year. They've interviewed, you know, 125 people, done a lot of um, research and have come up with this report. So there's been so much criticism of the World Health Organization itself through this pandemic, some some perhaps unfair, some perhaps fair. And, and looking forward, this report recommends some changes to the WHO and the power that it has. Tell us about those. Yeah, that to me was really one of the most interesting things about this report. Um, they pointed out that the fact that the WHO could not investigate um, 
what was going on in China early in the pandemic was a problem. And they are suggesting that um, going forward, the member states of the WHO should give it the power to be able to dispatch experts to investigate disease threats that appear to have pandemic potential, regardless of whether the host country wants them to come. That would be a real big change in, um, you know, international governance. And frankly, it's a hard sell. I have a hard time believing that in, that countries would willingly sign off on this in advance and say, yes, from now on, we will let international experts come in and investigate our outbreaks if they deem it's important. And Helen, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but that didn't happen in, in 2020, right, with China. Like, you know, the WHO could, WHO could not go into Wuhan, for instance, to investigate, you know, what became the coronavirus outbreak. That's correct. I mean, they did eventually go to China in February of uh, 2020, but that that took quite a bit of negotiation and their uh, movements within China were heavily restricted. Um, you know, they tried to go back uh, in the months afterwards to start to investigate where the virus might have come from. This, you know, the, the question about did this virus... Um, come directly from bats or were there intermediate species that, you know, became infected with it and then passed the virus to people or, you know, was something else going on there? And uh, China blocked them for quite a long time. Um, eventually, the World Health Organization was able to send an international group of experts in to uh, investigate, but it was months and months later. You know, this is something that requires tons of negotiation and um and frankly people point at china for this and as well they should but but the who doesn't have that power now because countries don't want it to have that power you know the the who only has the powers that its member countries give it and um countries like the united states are heavily involved in writing the rules for the WHO. Um, you know, it's not clear to me that this is something that the United States would be willing to sign off on either. So I recall back in early 2020, there was a lot of debate about exactly when the WHO would formally declare the coronavirus outbreak a public health emergency of international concern. So why is that important? And what did the experts on the panel recommend for future such declarations? You know, in theory, it's important because it's it's the WHO saying something big is happening. The world needs to be on alert. Um, you know, the way the, that system works uh, is that the WHO Director General appoints um, an expert panel to advise him or her on whether or not something has risen to the level of what is known as a fake really unfortunate acronym, but it's a public health aid, um, emergency of international concern. Uh, he uh, did that last January. They met, uh, I think on January 22nd or 23rd, but didn't take a decision. They, they were torn about whether or not the situation in China represented a public health, a global public health emergency at that point. So they, they, decided not to decide and uh, were called back about a week later, at which point they did come to a decision. The um, the review panel felt that that had been a mistake, that, they, that there was enough evidence at the first meeting for a fake to have been declared. Um, but 
one of the things they point out, and this is really important, is that even if a fake had been declared, that doesn't, you know, that declaration doesn't carry with it an obligation for countries to do anything. You know, mostly what happens when a fake is declared is the WHO says, you know, don't put um, unnecessary travel or trade restrictions in place. The idea behind that being that countries shouldn't be penalized for having been transparent about uh, diseases that threaten the rest of the globe. But it doesn't also say, you know, countries need to move into um, the next level of their pandemic preparedness. It told countries what not to do. It didn't tell countries what to do. And that's something that the report says needs to change. Every report of this nature is going to have its critics. So what were some of the negative reactions this week? Well, you know, some of the reactions were that um, the report hadn't been explicit enough about laying blame. Um, They did talk about some things that countries had done wrong. For instance, they talked about the fact that countries that had denied the threat or downplayed um, how important the event was had paid for it effectively in lives. But um, they didn't do a lot of blaming. One of the members of the commission, uh, Joanne Liu, told me that they took a conscious decision not to spend too much time in the blame game and rather to focus on um, what could be done to ensure this type of event didn't happen before. So that was one of the criticisms. Another, I think, was that some people are, while supportive of of the um, aims of some of the recommendations, like the one to allow the WHO to send uh, investigators into countries without the host country's permission. I think some of them are wondering about really how realistic it is that the member countries of the WHO will give them those kinds of powers. Another recommendation of the, the panel was to drastically overhaul the way the WHO is funded. And again, um, that's something that's come up time and time again. And Again and again, countries have refused to pay higher dues. Um, They seem to be fairly comfortable with the way the agency is funded at this point. It's interesting to read about it and and heartening to to see people trying to take clear-eyed looks at what went wrong and what we could have done better. But it's also kind of disheartening to hear that there's just so much... um, so much thought that this won't change anything. Um, And in your story, you quote the panel co-chair, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, saying, quote, the shelves of storage rooms in the UN and national capitals are full of reports and reviews of previous health crises. Had their warnings been heeded, we would have avoided the catastrophe we're in today. This time must be different. Is there any hope that that we actually will, as a world, um, come together to better prepare for the next pandemic? I, I just I'm getting depressed from this conversation, and I'm worried that nothing's going to change. Um, I I think that's always a risk. You know, the, the reality is that pandemics are rare events, and so um, coming out of this, countries will you know this will be sort of top of mind for a while. But if we go 20 years or 30 years before the next pandemic, pandemic threats might not remain, uh, you know, that high a priority. Um, that, that is really one of the problems. Um, that said, I think people feel like this particular event was 
has been so catastrophic that it will spur some reform just because the world has seen, you know, and, and continues to pay for, um, the con, you know, pay the consequences of, of not having prepared adequately for this one. Helen, thanks again for joining us. Thanks. Nice to talk to you guys. I think the CDC's credibility is eroding as quickly as our cases of coronavirus mm. are eroding. I think the CDC is being far overly cautious in a way that defies common sense. But who's running messaging at the CDC? Huh? People are unhappy with the CDC. And not just the people you'd expect to be unhappy, but also people in the public health world who argue the agency is moving too slowly and conservatively on its guidance during the pandemic. Stats Nicholas Florco spoke to a lot of those people this week, and he joins us now to tell us what he found. Nick, welcome back to The Read Out Loud. Thanks for having me. Nick, I'm a little disappointed you haven't been named FDA commissioner yet, but uh, <laughs> we're not here to talk about that. Uh, but from the people that you did speak with, what are the CDC's main offenses? So the main offense, honestly, has been not keeping up with the science, to be honest. As you alluded to, Adam, these aren't your average folks who are just frustrated and want to go back to normal life at any cost. I mean, these are experts who have been studying COVID nonstop for over a year now. And, and frankly, they're watching as the CDC puts out guidance that seems behind on the science. I mean, take the issue of surface transmission, for example. Scientists have been warning for, for nearly a year that overzealous cleaning of surfaces from the fogging of buildings to people wiping down their groceries was was unnecessary. And most experts recognize that surface transmission of COVID was was so rare that the cleaning with simple soap and water was enough. And yet it wasn't until last month that the CDC finally said definitively that deep cleaning with chemicals in most cases isn't necessary. And so experts, quite frankly, have been scratching their head as to why it took the CDC so long to say these sorts of things out loud. The CDC put out guidance on opening summer camps recently, and that guidance recommends that everyone in a camp, including campers older than two and fully vaccinated staff, wear masks at all times except when doing things like eating and, and swimming. And so public health experts say that that's out of step with the science. We know that the risk of outdoor transmission of COVID is much lower than indoor transmission. And there's some evidence that suggests that young people transmit the virus less efficiently than older people. And so people are rightfully asking, I think, why are we telling camps they have to put masks on three-year-olds if they're running outside in a fully ventilated area? And I should say that this, this gripe also gets to a, a big issue in public health, which is this question of, you know, whether we should be embracing tactics of harm reduction and telling people how to do things safer rather than telling them just to not do things at all. Right. So I wanted to ask about the concept of harm reduction in particular. You brought up examples in HIV and hepatitis C. Can you explain the concept, I guess, at large and how experts talked about it in the context of COVID-19? Yeah, absolutely. So when a public health official practices harm reduction, I mean, basically they're offering advice on, on how to do a risky behavior more safely versus simply telling people not to partake, partake in that behavior. So take the concept of injectable drug use. Rather than telling people don't do drugs, public health officials tell people if they're going to do drugs don't share needles or, or visit a syringe exchange program. In the context of COVID, the harm reduction concept really came up a lot in my conversations around travel. So the CDC up until April really took an abstinence-only approach here. They insisted that people should not travel, even if they've been vaccinated. And harm reduction advocates say that the better message here would have been, 
if you're going to travel, go get your vaccine first so you don't catch COVID. And you can see this concept play out a lot in how we approach the, the concept of gathering with people too. I mean, early on in the pandemic, we saw widespread lockdowns. People were told, don't leave your home. And a harm reduction message is, if you want to see people, do it outside and, and wear a mask. Do things that make that risky behavior less risky. Now, of course, I should say that that's one of the harm reduction messages that the CDC, to their credit, really has adopted. But I think it's a good exemplification of the two approaches here. So is this just a case of having to cover an entire country with blanket recommendations? Um, or did the public health experts you spoke with say they think the public could handle more nuanced guidance? So by and large, they do think that the public can handle more nuanced guidance. And it should be said that the CDC really does have a, a tough job here. There's there's no denying that. But what I continually heard from folks is that the C, if the CDC keeps going down this road of, of blanket restrictions and and being overly cautious, that, that people will just stop listening if they haven't already. It feels like a big logical jump to assume that the same cautious, cautious messaging that we've already seen being ignored is going to turn the tide here. And when you add the layer of some of these guidances being out of step with the science, I mean, so cautious in a way that isn't justified by the science, that's just shooting the CDC in the foot here and making it even harder to reach these populations and, and straining their credibility. So, Nick, you know, there was so much criticism of the CDC under the Trump administration. Um, obviously, we have a new a new regime, uh, a new CDC director in place, yet the criticisms remain. So you're right, Adam. I mean, there's been a change of the CDC from from the two administrations. I mean, it should be said that we hardly heard from the CDC director last administration. And there was evidence, as you alluded to, that the White House was actually meddling in CDC recommendations. We don't have that here. And frankly, that's a big positive change for public health. I mean, the fact that we're debating the CDC's messaging strategy is a step in the right direction, quite frankly. But that larger cultural issue that we've been talking about of the CDC being risk averse and really cautious in its approach hasn't changed. I mean, I spoke to Rich Besser, who led the CDC in 2009 during the swine flu, and he said that this was one of the biggest issues they faced, that they always struggled to figure out when to release guidance and when to, uh, you know, how cautious to be. So this has always been an issue at the CDC. It's just that the scale and the stakes of this pandemic have really brought it into a much clearer view for most people. I was curious, you touched on this a bit before, but what are the potential consequences of all this? You know, as you mentioned, some proportion of the country stopped listening to the CDC perhaps a long time ago, but is confidence overall in the agency eroding? Like what's at stake and, and where does it go from here, from this moment? So the big fear here again is that more and more people will stop listening to the CDC and that trust in the agency will drop. I haven't seen any good polling yet on trust in the CDC in recent weeks, so I can't say to definitively if confidence in the agency is eroding, but that's certainly the fear. And frankly, there's no denying that the CDC directors had a really bad spate of press over the last week. I mean, Dr. Walensky is getting asked these same questions on every TV show she goes on. Lawmakers gave her a tongue lashing at a hearing this week in the Senate on this exact issue. And I mean, we even saw The Daily Show do a segment criticizing the CDC's mask guidelines. You'd expect that that amount of negative press will have some impact on their reputation, but how much is still to be determined? And it should be said that the stakes are high here. I mean, the CDC, as we already alluded to, really took a, a big hit during the Trump administration. Their credibility was really strained with all these stories of political interference, et cetera. They need to build that back. And the thought of potentially losing more trust through being overly cautious is, is a really scary proposition for the agency. 
On the flip side of that, though, I mean, you make the argument or people you talk to make the argument in your story that the CDC risks losing even more trust if it goes too far too fast and has to walk itself back. Um, is there legitimacy to that argument? I mean, it almost seems like there is just nothing the agency can do that's right. No, I mean, there totally is. I mean, it's certainly right that if the CDC were to be too risky and we had an uh, an outbreak pop up of, of COVID in an area, that that would really hurt the CDC's credibility. The point that I would make, though, is like I mentioned at the start of this, that folks are really critiquing them for being what they think is out of step with the science. And just, I mean, if you look at surface transmission again, People were warning by by February of this year, Nature was even writing editorials urging the CDC to update that guidance. And we just saw it happen. There was peer-reviewed studies coming out that you couldn't even culture infectious disease from hospital units uh, of COVID patients. So it's those sorts of issues where people pretty clearly say, we know the answer here. And the CDC is reluctant to say it out loud. I think folks aren't asking the CDC to, to be willy-nilly with their their recommendations here. They're really just hoping that the CDC can be a bit more agile and communicate what we know about the science. And and frankly, also communicating clearly the risk to people. If we look at that harm reduction issue again, it's really about telling people, this is what we know about the risks, and this is how you can decide what is right for you in terms of risk tolerance. It's just about the CDC communicating what we know and what we don't know more clearly. Nick, thanks again for joining us. Of course, thanks for having me. This week brought the second iteration of the Stat Health Tech Summit, in which we gathered a bunch of interesting people to talk about the technologies, ideas, and massive sums of money that will shape the future of healthcare. Joining us to share some highlights from the event is Nick St. Fleur. He's a reporter here at STAT, and he's also our Associate Editorial Director of Events. Nick, thanks for joining us. Hey there. Thank you so much for having me. So over the course of two days, we heard from CEOs of billion-dollar companies, startups that are less than a year old, and patients dealing with chronic disease. Was there a running theme that stood out to you? There certainly was. Um, one of the themes that really uh, stood out to me was this idea and this need for serving um, marginalized communities, uh, people of color, uh, black folk, and, and especially women as well with um, digital health through virtual health. Um, we had a panel to start off the, the conference with um, A.G. Uh, Bretenstein, who is the uh, co-founder of Folks Health, which is a company that specializes in virtual care for the queer and trans communities. And uh, Bertenstein was talking about how technology can make it easier for people to access care that often comes with barriers. Uh, we had a panel with Dina Shakir, who was saying that women control 80% of the dollars in healthcare. care. Uh, they're 50% of the population. And yet somehow it's still seen by some as a niche market. Uh, though she said now, you know, more and more people are jumping on the train. Um, we had Toyin um, uh, Ajayi speaking from um, City Block Health, speaking about how, you know, COVID, you know, exasperated some of these inequalities and equities that we already see in our healthcare system. And uh, Toyin was talking about how it was very important for them to, to talk about, you know, talk to people and figure out what were the needs that they needed, um, their technological needs and how to address them. 
And one important theme that I think we should all keep in mind, and that was shared by um, several of our uh, panelists, was this idea that, you know, the pandemic, even though here in the U.S., you know, we're talking about going to restaurants, we're talking about seeing friends, uh, we're talking about, you know, being vaccinated and going back to our, our you know, going back to 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 normal but in india it's still raging on and we had a very powerful session with um gita nair from from salesforce who was saying that you know if, if you're living on planet earth i assure you the pandemic is not over India and Brazil are great examples of the forest still being on fire. Uh, when we don't go to help our fellow global neighbors, we can rest assured that the fire is spreading. So if everyone on this planet doesn't really work together, that the pandemic will not be over for us here, especially here in the Western Hemisphere, if we don't help our global neighbors. So I thought that was such a great take home message as well from the from the summit. One topic that came up time and again uh, was the promise of artificial intelligence in medicine. Uh, we heard a lot of warnings uh, that its potential might be a little overhyped, but then none other than the former Google CEO, Eric Schmidt, said it was poised to revolutionize biology. So, so what's the disconnect there in health tech? That's a great question. Uh, Eric Schmidt was talking about how he really feels that AI will have its biggest impact in biology and health. Uh, part because biology is so complicated, as he was saying. And he felt that that disconnect, as you alluded to, had to really deal with, um, you know, policy changes that he wants to see, uh, you know, to really fully unlock AI's, you know, full potential. Um, in his opinion, he, he really wants to move towards a, a opt out kind of system for privacy rules when it comes to, to research, because so much of this data, um, this um, uh, anonymous uh, data, health data, it's it's being collected and such. Um, you know, it's available for, for algorithms to really glean these insights. But to make it really useful, people need to, you know, have to opt out of the research so that, you know, scientists can can use that, can analyze that data. Um, it, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that was a controversial kind of take from him. So I'm curious to see how people view that. Um, but he, he was also talking a bit about how Boston needs to double down on its investment in, you know, the life sciences, in, in health tech as well, and especially in AI. So one recurring topic was the perhaps untapped potential of a health technology that's not particularly new, which is continuous glucose monitoring. Tell us a little bit about Dexcom CEO Kevin Sayer. Right. So Kevin Sayer, um, he was talking to us about Dexcom. Um, he, he, he brought up a really funny um, anecdote about how he's wearing all these sensors. And he said, you know, my wife makes fun of me because he wears sensors all the time. Uh, one morning he woke up, he had he had four sensors on his body and his, his wife was just like, stop, stop. That's enough. Uh, I, I, I jokingly called him a, a cyborg after that because I thought it was so funny. Um, but he had mentioned also a story where I believe a, a law student had used uh, one of his, um, you know, uh, sensors. Their blood sugar levels may have gone low or their glucose levels may have gone low. And um, it sent an alert to this individual's brother who was able to call the EMT, uh, you know, have an ambulance go to that person's house and, and, and honestly save his life. So he said, you know, in the early days, he received this email from someone saying, hey, you, you saved my life, um, which just really speaks to the power of, of, of these sensors. Well, to that point, of course, all of Stats events, this one included, was done virtually um, because of the pandemic. So do you think that everybody will be convening in person next year? Oh, goodness. That is a great 
question. I mean, I think next year we will certainly return to in person. And I know the, the events kind of community is moving towards that as well. But you know, to, to your point there, uh, really, if we want to make this a reality, we really need to be good, good, good global neighbors and help um, the people in, in, in India and, and in Brazil where where you know, this is still raging on and big tech, health tech, the big players in health tech are really a part of this conversation. And as our panelists really highlighted, we need to come together to to, to, to quash COVID-19 once and for all on, on the global stage. Well, Nick, uh, I hope to see you in person at the next health tech event. Uh, thanks for joining us. I hope to as well. Thank you all so much and, and stay safe. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose, and our executive producer is Rick Burke. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and how you would run the CDC or WHO. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week. 